0: And since we have confessed in song that we can do nothing apart from Christ, let's now turn to His all-sufficient Word that we might stand in the strength of His might. So please turn with me, if you will, in your copy of the Scriptures to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, and we'll continue to meditate upon God's sovereign power over human history and His good purposes for his people. Daniel 8, 1 to 27. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now speak to us from your word and remind our timid hearts that there is no throne that is higher than yours. Cause us to labor faithfully in the present, knowing that our future is secure in Christ. Help us to fix our eyes on the cross that we might see that you are sovereign over evil and that you hold the very breath of evildoers in your hand. Teach us, O Lord, to entrust ourselves to you in the face of hostility, injustice, and affliction. Grant us patience endurance, hope, and joy that you may be glorified in your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If someone had told me in high school that a day was coming when we would do Zoom calls on a handheld device, I think I would have found it hard to envision that, envision what this would look like, what it would look like to live in a world where everyone could do that however things changed with the public launch of the internet in the early 90s with emails and various instant messaging services going around the idea of a future where people separated from each other by great distances and time zones could see each other and talk to each other that became more believable more conceivable You know, sometimes the future can be hard to understand till you move a little closer to it. Friends, our Heavenly Father understands this about us. And that's why He reveals His plans and purposes progressively. In the Bible, God progressively reveals more of Himself, His plans, and His purposes until the cumulative revelation of these truths. Reaches its climax, its fullness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why Daniel, even though he was a prophet, struggled to comprehend the visions he was given. Now in Daniel chapter 7, we are told that Daniel was given an apocalyptic vision of the future and he wrote it down. God unveiled the future of human history to Daniel so that he and those in exile would be both prepared for suffering and be filled with hope. And that hope was this, that God was going to come. He was going to destroy the kingdoms of this world and establish his everlasting kingdom. And the ground of that hope was the conquest of his Messiah, the coming Son of Man to whom would be given an everlasting dominion so that all peoples would worship him. But Daniel learned something about the future of his people That he did not know before he learned that suffering was not going to end with the exile but the conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the people of God was going to continue till the end of the age in chapter 7 Daniel sees in his vision that human governments and their rulers are like vile depraved beasts in God's eyes they are beasts who rage against God and his peoples. And so Daniel sees kingdoms rising up one after the other. After Babylon comes Medo-Persia. After the Medo-Persians come the Greeks. And after the Greek empire comes Rome, the fourth beast. But as we saw last week, the fourth beast is, is different from the others. It's certainly more hostile and cruel. But it points beyond itself to the very end of the age. The fourth beast is Rome and beyond. And just like the fourth beast is exceedingly wicked, so will be the kingdoms of this world in the last days. And out of this kingdom will come a ruler, an evil, arrogant figure who will oppose God, oppose his worship, and persecute God's people. This little horn is the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians Two, three. He will make war against the saints and prevail over them. But God will end his tyranny at the second coming of Christ. He will destroy him and give the kingdom to his saints. Now all of this was very overwhelming for Daniel. Think about how unsettling it would have been to have been given this information that an evil ruler is going to come in the future. He's going to persecute God's people. And he will succeed. That's not good news. You know, We're told that Daniel kept the matter in his heart and he pondered over it. He pondered over the succession of godless kingdoms. He pondered over the conquering son of man and his coming kingdom. And he pondered about the persecution to come. Now you have to remember that Daniel wasn't given a specific timeline. He wasn't given a calendar with dates. He didn't know how long each kingdom would, would last. All he knew was that it would come one after the other. You see, we have the benefit of having the entire book of Daniel. We have the, the benefit of history. We have the advantage as new covenant believers standing on this side of the cross, living under the reign of Jesus' inaugurated kingdom. We have moved closer to the future. We live in the last days. But Daniel did not even know who these kings were. He didn't know the names of these kingdoms. All he knew in chapter 2 was that the head of gold was Babylon. It's only when we get to chapter 8 that we learn that the second and the third kingdoms are the Medo-Persians and Greece. Think about that. Brothers, because of Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient word, you know much more than Daniel did. I think of what Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 17. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Brothers, given what you know, shouldn't your faith be stronger? Shouldn't your love and zeal for God and his kingdom be greater? Shouldn't your obedience be more courageous? Knowing that because of Christ, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? Now, two years later, the Lord gave Daniel another vision. Only this time, it was of the immediate future for him. Something he could relate to. And it was also about the future of the people of Israel after the exile. And so as we look at this vision in chapter 8, you will see that it adds more information about the second and the third kingdoms of chapter 7, about the bear that was raised on one side and devoured much flesh, about the leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and its four heads. It's adding more information to that vision. But this vision reveals to us something more. It tells us that God's sovereign power is unlike any other power on earth. It's unlike any other power on earth. And so the point of this passage is to prepare God's people for the coming persecution by reminding them of God's power, specifically His power over evil and evildoers. Think of it as preparation for persecution for the purpose of perseverance. That's a lot of P's. How would Jesus say it? This is what he would say. John 16 verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus says it better, doesn't he? Jesus is always better. So you and I need to hear these truths written in the 6th century BC in order to be faithful till the end. To keep us from falling away, we need to hear these truths. And if the book of Daniel has, has taught us anything, it's this. Things are not going to get easier for Christians. It's going to get more difficult. But this doesn't mean that we should be pessimistic about everything. It simply means that we should be realistic and hopeful despite the dark days ahead. So here's the first truth that we need to hear in order to prepare ourselves for the days ahead. Number one, all earthly powers are short-lived. All earthly powers are short-lived. Look at verses 1 to 2. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. So this is two years after the vision of chapter 7. That happened the first year of Belshazzar and now Daniel is still living under the rule of the first beast. But he's gotten to know this beast much better. He's gotten to know this beast much better. He knew what Nebuchadnezzar was like. Belshazzar was an arrogant king who was very comfortable in his wickedness. He was a self-absorbed man who delighted in provoking God. And so this is Daniel's boss at the time. If you thought your boss was the worst, think again. But when Daniel receives this vision, it reminds him of the first. Notice what he says, this vision appeared after that which appeared to me at the first. So Daniel sees that these visions are tied together somehow. Verse 2, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elon. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. Notice how specific this vision is. Unlike the former vision, which begins with a picture of the world in its hostility and rebellion against God. This begins at a specific geographic location. So Daniel sees himself at Susa, the citadel in the Elam province. Now a citadel is a fortress or a castle. Susa today is in southwest Iran, roughly 320 kilometers east of what was once Babylon. And Susa was on the banks of this canal. Now in ancient times, this place, the citadel, canal in the province, this place would have been considered as the power seat of the Persian Empire. It would be like someone saying, I was at Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. Or at the San Miguel District at the Malankanyang Palace. You know, the location in the vision prepares Daniel for what is to come. And here's what he sees. Look at verses 3 to 4. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. A ram is an adult male sheep, it had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. Now remember, this is apocalyptic literature. All of this is symbolic imagery. Horns, as you learned from last week, are symbols of power. They represent kings or or rulers. And when Daniel is given an interpretation later, in verse 20, he is told that the ram with the two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. This is the same kingdom as that fierce bear that was raised on one side. The fact that one horn is higher than the other represents a power imbalance in the kingdom with the Persians being more powerful and dominant in the Medo-Persian empire. Look at verse 4. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. You know, this is imagery. This imagery demonstrates What will come to pass? Daniel is being told of the vast expansion of this empire. Historically, the Medo-Persian Empire spread to Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor in the west, to Armenia and the regions around the Caspian Sea in the north and into Africa in the south. The text says no beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. Now this word in Hebrew that is translated as power literally reads as hand. There was no one who could rescue from his hand. He did as he pleased and became great. Now do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's boast to Daniel's friends when he threatened them with death in the burning fiery furnace? He said, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Daniel 3.15 And when God did deliver them, he said, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. It is God who does according to his will, according to Daniel 4.35. No one can stay his hand. And here we have this language being used of the Medo-Persians. What does that tell you? This kingdom is attempting to do godlike things. And we know what becomes of men who attempt to play God, don't we? They fall. Psalm 49, verse 12, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And sure enough, despite all that power, Daniel sees that the ram's dominion is short-lived. It's short-lived. Look at verses 5 to 7. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Imagine that. This goat is moving so fast, it's not touching the ground. It's floating. And unlike the previous kingdom that spread in three directions, this one's expansion seems to be greater across the face of the whole earth. And the goat had a conspicuous horn, a a noticeable horn, a prominent one, between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns. So the horn is a he. It's a prominent ruler from that kingdom. He came to the ram which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. So much for the ram's dominion. Look at what the verse says next. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. The ram's defeat is humiliating. It's severe. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now from verse 21 we know that the goat in the vision represents the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. This represents Alexander the Great, the son of Philip of Macedon. Alexander was a student of the great philosopher Aristotle and he was ambitious and restless. He wanted to rule the world and like that goat that went across the earth without touching the ground, Alexander was swift and relentless in his conquests. He became a general at the age of 21 and was so strategic that within a short period of 10 years, at the age of 32, he had conquered the entire Medo-Persian empire up to the borders of India. History records for us that after 200 years of Medo-Persian dominance, Alexander conquered the Persian forces in 334 BC. At that time, King Darius had 100,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 horsemen. And yet Alexander and his troops managed to kill 20,000 of the Persians with the loss of only 100 of his men. Now here are a couple of things I want you to observe in this text. First, consider the folly of human boasting. Consider the folly of human boasting. What happened to the mighty ram? No one could stand before him. No one could rescue anyone from his power. He did as he pleased and now he's gone. Friends, no human ruler or human government is forever. Don't put your hope in them. Do not place your security in the passing powers of the world. One day, someone bigger, better, louder, newer, stronger, and more conniving will arrive and outdo the former. Human greatness is always short-lived. The English preacher John Wesley once recorded in his journal about seeing the king during one of his visits to the House of Lords. Listen to this. December 23rd, 1754, I was in the robe chamber, adjoining the House of Lords, when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And is this all the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford? A blanket of ermine round his shoulders so heavy and cumbersome he can scarcely move under it. A huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. Alas, what a bauble is human greatness. And even this will not endure. Beloved, there are kings and rulers and politicians in the history of the world who thought of themselves as invincible and indispensable. Where are they now? In the grave. The graveyards are full of invincible and indispensable men. You know, there is only one kingdom that is everlasting and unshakable. And there is only one throne that is worthy of all honor and praise and glory and might. And that is the kingdom of God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one who can rescue us from perishing. There is only one who gives us life everlasting through his saving word. There is only one who has conquered death and calls us to a life beyond the grave. and That is the Lord Jesus Christ and our destiny is tied to his. The kingdoms of this age are passing away. They're short-lived. Notice that the same thing happens to Alexander, the great horn of the goat. His reign is also short-lived. Look at verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, so this is at the height of his power and success, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So at the peak of his rule, Alexander died at the age of 33. Notice the passive verb in the text. It says the great horn was broken. Broken by whom? By God. Alexander died of a mysterious illness. He contracted a fever, suffered from intense pain for 12 days, and then he died. After Alexander's death, his kingdom fell apart. His kingdom was fought over and divided among his generals, the four conspicuous horns. They were Ptolemy, who ruled over Egypt, Seleucus, who ruled over Syria, Lysimachus, who ruled over Thrace and Asia Minor, and Cassander, who ruled over Macedonia. Here's the other thing I want you to note: Did you notice how these superpowers are portrayed? Not as fearsome beasts like the previous chapter, but as... Domesticated animals, a ram, a goat. It's not very flattering. You know, if the first vision showed how depraved and hostile these kings and kingdoms were in God's sight, this vision shows how finite and insignificant they are before God's sovereign power. The mighty Alexander, Alexander the Great, who even declared himself to be a god, the son of Zeus he called himself. This great conqueror who had a violent temper and a lust for fame and power in God's eyes is not Alexander the Great, but Alexander the Goat. (laughs) It's good to read history. History is important. But from whose perspective are you reading history? you know, pick up a history book or an encyclopedia and it will have plenty to say about Alexander. In God's view, he doesn't get much media coverage, does he? You see, God wants Daniel to remember the finitude of these human kings and kingdoms. Daniel will not live long enough to see Medo-Persia's downfall or Alexander's conquest, but he will certainly live to see Babylon's downfall and the beginning of the Medo-Persian dominion. We've already seen that in chapters 5 and 6. Here's the second truth we need to hear in order to prepare for the days ahead. Number one, earthly powers are short-lived. Number two, our persecution will also be short-lived. Persecution will also be short-lived. Now, friends, even as we continue continue to think about these things, I want to remind you that the Lord wants us to think His thoughts after Him. To see things from His perspective. And to be encouraged to stand firm no matter what the Lord decrees for our sanctification and for His glory. This is how we must look at our present and our future. Whether it flows peacefully like a river or rages wildly as the sea. After roughly 150 years of skirmishes between the Greek ruled regions, especially between the Syrian Seleucids and the Egyptian Ptolemies, Out of the Seleucid kingdom in Syria came another ruler. And this is how Daniel foresaw his coming in the vision. Look at verses 9 to 12. Out of one of them, out of one of those four kingdoms, came a little horn. Again, note the pattern. That which is insignificant attempts to become something great. Now this little horn should give you a sense of deja vu, right? Wait a minute, haven't we dealt with this anti-Christ, end time, anti-Christ type type figure in chapter 7? But this little horn in chapter 8 is different from the little horn in chapter 7. He's different because the little horn in chapter 7 arises from the fourth kingdom and beyond. This little horn arises from the third kingdom. Look at the text. A little horn is seen by Daniel which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east. Now historically this king has been identified as Antiochus IV from the Seleucid kingdom in Syria and he came to power in 175 BC. He invaded Egypt in the south and then made his way to the east towards Persia and Armenia. But why does this vision single him out? Well because of where he goes next. Look at the text, he made his way, where? Toward the glorious land. The glorious land refers to the promised land, to the land of Israel. In Ezekiel 20 verse 6, the Lord calls it a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. Verse 10, it, the little horn, this ruler, grew great even to the host of heaven. Now, remember that this section is in Hebrew. This would have made more sense to the exiles and especially to Daniel. This language is is similar to the way Isaiah, you remember Isaiah, who wrote in the 8th century BC, long before the exile. This is the way Isaiah describes the pride of the king of Babylon. Isaiah 14, 13-14. This is how he describes the pride of the king of Babylon. He says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So this ruler wants glory that is reserved for heaven alone. See, this man is a megalomaniac. But he not only reaches for glory that is not meant for him, Daniel also sees that he will violently persecute God's people. Look at the next verse, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now this does not mean that Antiochus killed a few angels and brought down a few planets and walked over them. Now remember this is all symbolic imagery, truth portrayed with visual effects. In the Old Testament, The people of Israel are often referred to as the hosts of the Lord. Exodus 12 verse 41. The children of Abraham are likened to stars. So think of God's promise to Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Or think about that prophecy about the Messiah in Numbers 24 verse 17. That a star shall come out of Jacob. Daniel himself likens the saints to stars in Daniel 12.3. This trampling of the stars points to the horrific way in which Antiochus persecuted the believing Jewish community when he invaded Palestine and sought to Hellenize the community, to force people to adopt Greek culture and its practices. Now, how do we know that this is the right way to understand the symbols? Well, thankfully, we're given an interpretation to know that we are on the right track. Look at verse 24. What does throwing down host and stars mean? He will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. But that's not all. Look at verse 11. It, this little horn, became great, even as great as the prince of the host. In other words, this ruler will try and exalt himself as God. God is the prince of the host. He is the commander of his people. I think the NASB is helpful here. It reads, it even magnified itself to be equal to the commander of the host. How did he do this? You see, Antiochus gave himself this title. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning I am God made manifest. God in the flesh, God incarnate. He claimed to be the manifestation of the Greek god Zeus, But his critics called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. You know, when Antiochus attacked Jerusalem, he savagely butchered men, women, and children, and even took away the vessels from the temple. In order to force people to adopt Hellenistic practices, he established established gymnasiums around the temple area. So gymnasiums were where athletes trained naked, you know, as if that were not bad enough. He then stopped the daily sacrifices at the temple, realizing that this was what brought the people together, their worship. So he attacked their worship. Look at the text. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, from God, and the place of his sanctuary, the temple, was overthrown. You know, this was a a horrific time of suffering for the Jewish people. During his reign of terror, Antiochus bribed many priests, several Jews, gave into the pressure of threats and they adopted Hellenistic practices, the people of Israel once again gave into idolatry, the very sin that brought about the exile. And the faithful few who resisted were tortured and persecuted and even killed. Antiochus even went into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar. He was like belshazzar provoking god himself only his actions were worse he was not just defiling the vessels but the temple itself antiochus outlawed the sabbath he forbade people from circumcising their children and anyone who tried to keep the law he persecuted you know this is what he would here's an example of what he would do to those who defied him and went ahead and obeyed the law and circumcised their sons he would first slaughter the babies and then hang the dead babies around the necks of their mothers and then push the mothers over the walls of Jerusalem so that they would fall to their deaths. This was his way of making a point. Look at verse 12. And a host will be given over to it, to this little horn. Believing Jews were given into his hand. note God's sovereign control even in this horrific time of suffering. They are given over together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. Did you see that? Because of transgression. That tells you the reason for all this affliction that came upon the nation of Israel because of transgression. Or because of the rebellion. This means that God sent his judgment in, form, in the form of Antiochus' cruelty, much in the same way that he sent the Babylonians to judge Israel and send them into exile. And just as Daniel and the faithful remnant suffered, so will a faithful remnant suffer when God's judgment in the form of Antiochus' reign of terror falls upon the land. You know, the history of the Jews is recorded for us in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. So that's, those books are not inspired literature, but they contain useful historical information. And those books record that many Jews were unfaithful to the covenant. And they adopted idolatrous practices. In fact, even Daniel 11 will say that. But more than that, people were already walking in unfaithfulness long before Antiochus got there. Notice what God permits this maniac to do. Look at what the little horn does. It will throw truth to the ground, meaning he will defy God's word and try to corrupt it. Antiochus ordered copies of God's word, the scrolls to be seized and, and, and burned. Whatever he set his wicked heart to do, he did. The text says he, he, the little horn will act and prosper. So you can imagine what was going on at the temple. Terrible things were going on. And the temple had now become, well, as he looks forward, the temple will become virtually uninhabited or desolate. He stopped the daily sacrifices. No one was going there. But the height of his wickedness was displayed when he desecrated the temple by setting up an idol of Zeus in it. You know, this was an abomination. A horrible thing to the believing Jews. This this is what is referred to in Daniel 11.31 as the abomination that makes desolate. This really angered the Jewish community and it led to a revolt for Jewish independence. Now while Daniel is seeing all of this in his vision, he hears a conversation that piques his interest. Look at verses 13 to 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke. So two angels are chatting and one asks, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. You know, this scene reminds me of that passage in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, about how prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And Peter says that these are the sort of things into which angels long to look. So these angels are talking. One angel asked the other, how long is this intense period of persecution going to last? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now remember how numbers work in apocalyptic literature. The reference to evenings and mornings refers to the daily sacrifices, the evening and morning sacrifices in the temple, those burnt offerings that Antiochus had stopped. So, two thousand three hundred evening and morning sacrifices amounts to one thousand one hundred and fifty days, which works out to roughly a period of three plus three and a half years. But the point is not to be exact here. Remember that seven is the number of fullness. And three and a half, or less than three and a half, signifies a limited period. Right? It's a funny way of, of, you know, pointing to time. But you can imagine what these Jews were feeling. The sacrifices are gone, and so he's pulling out how many sacrifices have been lost, and he's saying so many days. Three and a half is a limited period. Now, historically, this corresponds to a time of intense suffering and fight for Jewish independence. When Antiochus desecrated the temple in June of 168 BC, the sons of a Jewish priest named Mattathias led a revolt against Antiochus and his troops. His son Judas earned the name Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer. He was called that because of his skills in guerrilla warfare. Hence, this revolt is called the Maccabean Revolt. In Jewish history. And after a series of strategic battles, the Jews won and they cleansed and rededicated the temple on December 25th, 164 BC, a feast that is celebrated to this day as the Festival of Rededication or Hanukkah. Now, this vision of what would happen to his people in the future, and especially the temple, would have greatly alarmed Daniel. But it would have also encouraged Daniel to keep trusting in the Lord. This vision meant that Jeremiah's prophecy would indeed come true. The exile was going to be over soon. His people would be back in the land. The temple would be rebuilt. And so seeing this was kind of bittersweet for Daniel. This vision is what the Lord used to prepare him to face Belshazzar with such boldness that he would be able to say with confidence that his kingdom was going to be given over to the Medes and Persians. But it also revealed to Daniel that there was going to come a time when many in Israel would be unfaithful again. There was going to come a time when the saints, the faithful remnant, would be persecuted for their faith. But God would limit that time. You see, Daniel recorded these things in writing so that future generations would not be surprised when it came. So that they would be ready to suffer for their allegiance to the Lord and his covenant. Beloved, all our trials, all our sufferings have an expiry date. And it's in the Lord's hands. It's in his hands. Things may look like they're spiraling out of control. And and don't misunderstand me to be saying, oh, just suck it up and keep a happy face. You know, I'm not saying that, far be it for me to say such an unbiblical and wicked thing that suffering is not real or traumatizing. But what I'm saying is our God is bigger than all of it. He's bigger than all of it. I'm saying that in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your tears and your trauma, remember that you belong to your Savior. Remember that in the light of the joys of eternities that await us, these afflictions are but momentary. The Lord is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So don't look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. So Daniel tries to wrap his head around all that he had seen. Look at verses 15 to 19. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So Daniel sees an angelic creature in human form, something relatable. Verse 16, and I heard a man's voice. This is God speaking in a human voice, commanding his angel Gabriel. I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai and it called, Gabriel, make this man, referring to Daniel, make this man understand the vision. So Gabriel came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. You can tell by this that even though he has an appearance of a man, Gabriel, as an angel who stands in God's very presence, is fearful to behold. Friends, if God's heavenly messengers are such awesome beings, how much more awesome is God himself? Think of all the things that Daniel has just seen and see how he reacts. Beloved, far more terrifying than the evils of this world is the holiness of heaven. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. So Gabriel exhorts Daniel. He said to me, understand, O son of man, referring to Daniel's mortality, In other words, these God-given revelations about the future are for you to understand. Praise God for the understanding that he gives his saints through his word. Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the end, for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Daniel is physically and emotionally exhausted after all of this, but Gabriel strengthens him. Well, strengthens him for what? to receive the interpretation. And we will see that after receiving the interpretation, that'll only leave Daniel more emotionally distressed and even sick for a period of time. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, what do these terms mean? Time of the end, latter end of indignation, appointed time of the end. This doesn't mean, this is not referring to the absolute end when Christ will return and judge the Antichrist. It refers to the end of the days of Antiochus, the end of his persecution, the end of indignation. That word means wrath. It refers to the completion of God's wrath, his judgment on both Antiochus and the unfaithful people of Israel. God wants Daniel to understand what he has seen. Again, let me remind you, Daniel doesn't know about names. He hasn't been given names. He hasn't received a calendar with dates. So what is he supposed to understand? The Lord wants Daniel to understand that when this comes, it will be terrible, but it will be short-lived. The Lord will step in and he will bring an end to the persecution for the sake of his saints. And friends, this is what God wants us to understand as well. How much can you really wrap your head around suffering when it comes? How much can you really understand? How many of us can say, I know why God did this. I know why he permitted this or decreed this tragedy in my life. Sometimes we might be able to look back and and say, perhaps, yeah, I think I can see why God did that. Look at how my faith has been strengthened because of it. But even that answer comes from our understanding that God is good and that he is all wise and he does all things for our sanctification and for his glory. But we do not know exactly why he did it, do we? The secret things belong to the Lord. But this we can learn from Daniel and say with confidence that the Lord is sovereign over all our suffering. It will be brief in light of his coming kingdom and he will surely put an end to it. You see, the Lord wants Daniel to know something of what's coming in the future so that he could write it down for his people so that it could be recorded for you and I so that through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. That's Romans 15.4 which brings us to the third truth that we need to hear in order to prepare and persevere in the days to come. Number three, put your hope in the hand of God. Put your hope in the hand of God, in his saving power. See, Gabriel makes a point to talk about the horn being broken by no human hand in verse 25. This is God's divine saving power that will destroy the wicked and receive the saints into the kingdom. Consider Gabriel's interpretation of the vision for Daniel. Look at verses 20 to 25. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns... These are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. So they are weaker than Alexander. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, You know, this means that when people have reached the full measure of their sins. This refers to the unfaithfulness of the Israelites who broke covenant with God. This kind of language is used to describe a point in time when God in His wisdom will render His judgment on the unfaithful. You see, God lets sinners continue in their wickedness until the time when He judges them. He waited 400 years till the Canaanites reached the full measure of their sins before he destroyed the city through Joshua and his men. So it will be with the kingdoms of this earth. Beloved, God is sovereign over the sins of men. Evil does not run its free course in this world. God has set limits on it. Be assured of that. This ought to be comforting to us, whatever you're dealing with uh, in in your life. Whatever challenge you may be facing, cut it down to size in light of God's greatness, in light of his power. This ought to give us assurance that the Lord has put limits on evil. Gabriel explains that when transgressors reach their limit, this will happen. A king of bold face, meaning a defiant and insolent king. One who understands riddles shall arise. This refers to that little horn, Antiochus. Now if you remember, this was said of Daniel in Daniel 5.12 that he could explain riddles. You know, this is a vile but clever king using his intelligence for evil. He is a crafty snake. Verse 24, his power shall be great. But not by his own power. Again, note the sovereignty of God over, the evil of, uh, over evil men. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Friends, this is why Daniel was bold in the face of evil. This is why he was able to say to Belshazzar, The God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored. Friends, the testimony of the scriptures is that while wicked men are morally culpable for their sin, yet a good, holy, and righteous God is sovereign over it. A.W. Pink writes, Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. Here is the foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind faith, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. Gabriel says this little horn will do this. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. This is what Antiochus did to the Jews. Verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. He will have no integrity. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Isn't this the fundamental problem of a sinful nature? That it is self-glorifying? This man will exchange the truth for a lie. He will deceive himself and deceive others. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, God himself. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, God will put an end to him. No matter how much the governments of this world and dictators and tyrants may rage and yell and scream and threaten, no one can deliver you from my hand. There is a hand, a divine hand that will destroy them, that will decimate them. this is what happened to Antiochus. Beloved, put your hope in that hand. History records for us that on the way back from one of his battles, Antiochus was suddenly struck with pain in his bowels. He fell from his chariot, injured himself badly, was bedridden, immobilized, suffered with intense pains. His body started decaying, stinking while he was still alive and he was eaten up by worms. Sound familiar? You recognize the pattern you see there's a reason why the little horn of chapter 8 sounds a lot like the little horn of chapter 7 even though they're different that's intentional it's because its characteristics are shared by many like itself in antiochus we are meant to see evil in its seed form a nature that all antichrist figures will possess throughout history Until it reaches its fullness and climax, until it reaches the heights of depravity, the full measure of iniquity in the final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. You see, what Daniel is being helped to understand is that satanic opposition against the Lord's people is fairly predictable. It's fairly predictable, and yet it is the Lord who will have the last word, hope in his hand. Notice what both the little horns do. Number one, they oppose God and exalt themselves. Number two, they oppose and interfere with the worship of God's people. And number three, they persecute God's people. But we don't have to wait for these visions to see that pattern, do we? Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar did? Isn't that what Belshazzar did? Isn't that what Pharaoh did? Isn't that what Herod did? Isn't that what Nero did? Beloved, we must not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. We know his pattern of opposition. John writes, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. John, 1 John 2.18 And in the fullness of time, the prince of princes, God himself entered into our sinful world to fulfill these prophecies in Daniel about his coming everlasting kingdom. The Son of God was made manifest. He took on flesh and He entered into our sinful world, not to exalt Himself, but to humble Himself and save His people. He was that stone that was cut out by no human hand. And His were the hands that were stretched out on the cross to save His people from their sins. Jesus not only glorified the Father through His obedience, He makes true worship in spirit and truth He makes true worship possible. He doesn't come to destroy his people but to save them. He is the Christ, the Messiah. His sacrificial death on the cross for the sins of his people was the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. When Jesus was handed over to be crucified, the spirit of the Antichrist was at work. Evil looked as though it was winning. Sinful rulers and Satan and unbelieving Jews and Gentiles all conspired to do what God had predestined to take place. That's what Peter says in Acts 4.28. They rose up against the prince of princes in the flesh. Can you imagine a greater evil laying hands on God himself? So as you think about the persecution to come and, and you think of it, of oh, the horror of it, Think about the horror of this. They laid hands on God himself. They rose up against the prince of princes in the flesh and they put him, the Lord of history, to death. Evil looked as though it had the upper hand. Sinful men thought that they were in control of everything that was going on and yet through, the death, through his death on the cross, God was reigning over sin and evil. And after a short time, after three days, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. He inaugurated the kingdom of God that Daniel looked forward to. He ascended into heaven and will one day come back to judge wicked men, resurrect his saints and welcome us into eternal glory. Our friends, we don't have to look further than the cross to know that God is sovereign over evil. And to know that no matter what comes our way, God works all things for the eternal good of those who are called according to His purpose. For those who are united to His Son. So if you don't know this God, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. It is His hand that controls the destiny of every person. So turn to Him, repent of your sins and be saved from His hand of judgment. He's coming again on the clouds to judge the living and the dead and to receive His people to Himself. Friend, today your sins can be washed away if you turn away from them, confess them to Him, put your trust in His saving hands. You know, when Jesus was on earth, He said that God would destroy the temple in 70 AD as an act of judgment on the people of Israel for rejecting their Messiah. You see that in Luke 19... 41-44, 41 to 44. See that in Matthew 24, 37 to 39. And sure enough, there came one from the kingdom of Rome, another Antichrist type figure, the general Titus, who laid a siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple once for all, never to rise again, because everything that that temple pointed forward to was fulfilled in Jesus. Brothers, I hope you can embrace these visions as visions of hope. Don't see them as confusing. See them as clarifying for your future. Whatever God said came to pass in history and was fulfilled in Christ. This is the infallible word of God that equips us for the future. Until the return of our Savior, we must not be ignorant of Satan's devices nor his pattern of opposition. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 to 4 that prior to Christ's return, a man of lawlessness will be revealed. And that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, he says. What does that mean? There will be godlessness in the last days like we've never seen before, when transgressors will reach their limit. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And what will he do? Paul says he will oppose God's people and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. How will the Antichrist attempt to desecrate the temple? By desecrating God's living temple, made of living stones, his church. There will be a limited period of tribulation after which he will be destroyed by no human hand. Christ himself will return on the clouds and destroy him. Same pattern. Same pattern. See, Jesus himself uses the language of Daniel's vision to not only describe the destruction of the temple in 70 80, but also to tell us what will happen in the end because of the Antichrist. So, l- look over to Matthew 24 with me, and let me read a few verses. Matthew 24, that passage that Joseph read for us. See if you can identify the pattern. Matthew 24, verse 12. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will, be, will grow cold. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Do you, can you see the pattern? Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You know, this is what people did during the days of Antiochus. Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Verse 22, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, he will gather his elect to himself. This is our great hope, isn't it? Our confidence, our days are in his hand and we don't have to be afraid of the future to face what is to come. See, Daniel is assured that everything he has seen is true. Look at verses 26 and 27. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Daniel is told, this vision is about a future that you will not see. But remember, once again, Daniel doesn't know names. He doesn't have timelines. And so he is overcome by this vision. Verse 27, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then we see this remarkable behavior. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision. He was astounded and did not understand it. That doesn't mean he understood nothing. Gabriel helped him understand it. We know that. No, this simply means that he was perplexed by it all. He had many unanswered questions. But Daniel's behavior should inform us what we should be doing until this end time persecution comes. What should we do? We must go about our business. We must go about our business. See, God requires of us ordinary And everyday faithfulness as we hope in his hand. You know, the kind of faithfulness that you see in the first three chapters of Daniel. Friends, this is what will prepare us, by the grace of God, for the days ahead. So what should you do? Make disciples of all nations. Confess Christ before men. Pursue holiness with joy. Put off cultural thinking and put on the mind of Christ. Study His Word. Pursue the obedience of faith. Love one another. Deny yourself for the sake of serving one another. Exhort one another. Say no to sin and idolatry In the resurrection power of the Spirit. Put your hope in His hand. Put your hope in the glory to come. Let's pray. Lord, we give You praise for Your precious Word that is able to calm our troubled souls. Thank You for showing us that our hope and confidence ought to be in Christ alone. Lord, we pray that we would give ourselves to studying the scriptures so that you would keep us by your power from falling away. O Lord, grant us the ordinary faithfulness that you require that we may be prepared to glorify you in the days ahead. In Christ's name we pray.